0: Welcome to our Midshipman-produced podcast examining life at the United States Naval Academy, how it's evolved, how it's endured, and where it's going. I'm Midshipman Nels Waranimi.
1: I'm Midshipman Peter Shayner.
2: My name is Midshipman Wyatt Smith. And I'm Midshipman Calvin Tran.
0: The culture of the Naval Academy is distinctive. Midshipmen who have gone here across the years would agree that it's very different to go to school at the Naval Academy than it is to go to school at, say, the University of Maryland. So, Peter, why don't you tell us a little bit about culture and life at the U.S. Naval Academy?
1: Yeah, uh, for sure. The Naval Academy is a military, federal military academy. um, And with that, there's a lot of things that we do that are a lot more different than, say, a public school or even a private college um, that you may be more familiar with. One thing that we have to do as midshipmen here, we have to wear a uniform to class every single day. Four days out of the week, it's called Working Blues, and it's a black-on-black-on-black uniform. One day out of the week, we get to wear the Navy working uniform, which is a green and brown camouflage uniform that I'm sure the public is more familiar with seeing. On top of this, we also have formations at least two times a day. We have mandatory inspections like the Bravo inspection, which happens about twice a week and once a semester, the Alpha inspection, which is where you have to make your room look pretty much brand new. We have mandatory PT standards, and we also have... Um, things such as restriction and conduct and honor offenses. Um, all of this kind of together makes the Naval Academy very unique compared to a normal college or university.
0: Kelvin, can you expand on that?
2: Yes, no, so I can expand on that. So I would I would say that the midshipmen at the Naval Academy oftentimes have a greater sense of purpose than students at other civilian colleges, and the reason being is that People who come to the Naval Academy understand that they're planning to commission and in the armed forces. And because of that, the events that are happening throughout the world oftentimes have a large impact on the culture within the Academy. We can look out throughout history from World War II to 9-11. Those events had huge effects on the culture within the Academy and determined the attitudes that midshipmen had and the plans they had upon graduation. We can even see that today with COVID within the last year has had a large impact on midshipmen as a whole. And the reason for this is because despite being on, lo- uh, besides being on lockdown, the academy has also opted to do something unprecedented, which is shotgunning the classes of 23 and 24. And what a shotgun is, is essentially that when you come to the academy, you're put within a company um, of all four classes and you're expected to stay together within a community and a family and graduate together. But because of the effects that COVID had within the brigade, leadership thought that it would be a good idea to reset the culture within the academy by essentially splitting up these companies and sending people to companies and within groups of people that they don't know at all. And so that's something that right now, as Mitch and we're experiencing and addressing as the culture within the academy continues to change.
0: It is true there's a lot of concern that the culture has changed, perhaps significantly, as a result of COVID. And that's part of the motivation for our team creating this podcast is to determine what has been valuable in Naval Academy culture across time, and to try to preserve that among the brigade, while at the same time perhaps nudging this institution towards change where that's necessary. So now let's turn to this specific episode. We asked two guests to join us today, both of whom are professors at the Naval Academy. We asked them about their role as professors and their relationship to culture in the Brigade of Midshipmen. And the reason why we chose professors for the first episode is they have a unique position at the academy because they spend their careers teaching at the academy. And that's different from midshipmen who obviously turn over every four years. And that's different from the leadership back in Bancroft Hall among the officers, who also turn over every three, four, five years. But the professors, they've seen how things have stayed the same and how things have changed across time. And so we wanted to gain their insights. But they mentioned in the course of the interview, the double E and physics cheating scandal. Kelvin, can you tell us a little bit, give us background on those?
2: Yeah, so at the academy, another unique aspect of the academy is the honor concept. Um, at the Naval Academy, we take academic integrity and, and honor very seriously in all things we do. And if, they, if one was to cheat, there's usually very heavy repercussions for that. Now, despite this, there's been incidents over time where there has been cheating scandals. For example, in 1994, an investigation at the Naval Academy implicated about 125 midshipmen in a scheme that involved having advanced knowledge of answers to an engineering exam. John H. Dalton, who was then the Secretary of the Navy, ordered the expulsion of 24 midshipmen. Even more recently, on December 20th of 2020, there was an investigation alleging that 105 midshipmen were cheating on an online physics exam. The end result of this was that 82 were put on honor remediation and 18 midshipmen were expelled. These scandals have large implications on the culture of the brigade midshipmen, and it's the reason why this was such an important topic within this podcast.
0: Now, before we introduce our guests for today's episode, we need to first manage your expectations. The audio quality didn't turn out to be quite what we expected for this first interview. Why? can you tell us a little bit about that?
3: Yeah, so the producing equipment we've had, we're um, a little unfamiliar with, and as we continue to make these podcasts, we will improve as time goes on, and it's a work in progress.
0: All right, without further ado, let's introduce the guests for today's show. Charles J. Nolan Jr., a professor of English at the U.S. Naval Academy, is the author of Aaron Burr and the American Literary Imagination, as well as a number of articles in such journals as the Hemingway Review, Studies in Short Fiction, the Mark Twain Journal, Resources in American Literary Study, the Chaucer Review, and College Literature. He has served at different times as both Department Chair and as President of the Faculty Senate.
1: Brian Vandemark is a professor of history at the Naval Academy, where he has taught since 1990. He earned his Ph.D. at the University of California, Los Angeles, and is the author of several books, including his most recent, Road to Disaster: A New History of America's Descent into Vietnam.
0: Professor Nolan, Professor uh-huh. Vandemark, thank you very much for joining us today. You're going to have to forgive me for making this observation, but before <laughs> us we have about I think a collective 75 years of teaching experience here at the Naval Academy.
4: 75 times. Uh- <laughs> <I've-> <laughs>
0: so we're we're thrilled to hear about your experiences and to learn from that. So why I'll turn it over to you for the first question?
3: So Gentlemen, thank you very much. How would you describe the culture of the brigade when you first started teaching here? And how would you compare that in the second part of the question to how the culture is today?
4: Let me first, okay. Um, Well, I think uh, when I joined, it was the second year that women were here. So, and I had taught at the Air Force Academy, so I had come earlier from from an all male uh, world and it was still pretty much an all-male world here there were only 10 percent of the class were women at that point and uh, the registrar had to make sure that there were no there was always a, at least two women in any class because it was a tough it was really tough i mean the, the, the sexism was really powerful at that point so i mean i think that's i mean it's still a male world here because 70 percent of you are you know men and uh so i think that's still an issue of course but um, the admission of to, uh, women has made an enormously uh, useful, made an enormously useful uh, world for us here. I think anyway.
5: I would agree with uh, much of what Charlie said. I came thirteen years after he did, in nineteen ninety. So women had been here for fourteen years, but the um, the sexist bias against women among a lot—not all, but a lot—of the brigade was still palpable. Um, I think it was less overt by the time I got here, but it was still there. Uh, And I think that's been exploded in the last 31 years. I think um, that has something to do with just the new normal. People adjust to new circumstances. I think women are a larger percentage of the brigade today than they were in 1990. And um, I think the brigade itself is somewhat more diverse than it was then. Really diverse. Um, versus what was. (laughs) Yes. I mean, back then it was overwhelmingly white male students. And there's still, I think, a a plurality of students here, but uh, there are a lot of other midshipmen who are not either white nor male. Um, The other thing I noticed, it's a small little thing. I wonder if Charlie has. When I first started here, my typical student uh, the metaphor I would use had made an 800 on the math section of the SAT <laughs> and about a 400 on the verbal section of the SAT. And over time, that balance has evened out somewhat. Uh, today, I would say my average student is uh, quite capable at math and also much more capable at uh, verbal expression and written expression than he or she was 31 years ago. They've, they've admitted students who are not uh, lopsidedly STEM
0: have you noticed that as well, Professor? Yeah, Nolan?
4: sure. Um, it was, uh, as Brian says, it, it was really, uh, really quite striking. I don't know. I, I don't have the numbers. You know, the, 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 now you, you scan your your uh, SATs and MIDs, and uh, it's very impressive. Um, I get. I, I've been lucky to teach recently the validator sections of English, so I get to see the high performers uh, verbally in 112V. And it's not unusual to see, you know, 800, 700, or 700, 800. I mean, it's, it's pretty impressive. I mean, it's an impressive, impressive group of people here uh, to, uh, to, to get to work with.
0: I had a professor, plevier who said that the brigade of midshipmen is a source of mysticism for the average American. They don't know what it's like. So if you had to describe what the brigade is like to someone who's never been here or doesn't know anybody who's gone here, what would you tell them? What is the culture of this place like?
4: Uh, You take that first. All right, I'll answer first.
5: (laughs) Um, I'll share with all of you what I think I've shared with Nels and other students that I've had. Uh, I've never served in the military. Uh, My father had served in the Navy in World War II on an aircraft carrier off of Okinawa. Uh, That was a big moment in his life. It had a big impact on him, and therefore that part of his life had a big impact on me, but I didn't know the Navy from the inside out. And when I first started teaching here, my initial impression is probably one that a lot of outsiders have, which is if you walk into a classroom of 30 midshipmen, you see 30 people dressed exactly the same way. And I think what that tends to reinforce is a preconception that they all think the same way because they all dress the same way. And it took me a while to realize that that's simply not true. In a room of 30 students dressed the same way. You have 30 people with 30 different perspectives, 30 different life stories. And once I really internalized that insight, it helped me a lot in terms of relating to them, because they're just human beings and individuals beneath all of that uh, um, unanimity or uniformity when it comes to uh, military culture.
4: Yeah, I think that's that's right. Um, I had been in the Air Force, and so I knew the, the culture of the Air Force, which is different, of course, from Navy and Marine. Culture, But not all that. The people that come to the academies tend to be relatively the same kind of student um, in terms attitudinally and, uh, and, and even academically. Um, so it wasn't a mystery to me when I when I was hired. I, I joked about all you have to do is show me where the light switch is, and I can, you know, I can do it because it wasn't really that that different. What was the second part of that that you were
5: how has it changed culturally oh yeah today? how the
4: culture changed that's hard to say you know in a lot of ways because though it is still a male culture there's no doubt about that and that that causes I think some of the women's students difficulty because they have to do more adjusting than you all do to to a not only to the military world but to the academy culture itself which is 70% percent right I mean the last few years it's been 28, 29 30 percent women in each class that has made a huge difference from when I first started and it was ten percent I mean it was hardly palpable you know that, that uh, but now uh, I mean you all have grown up many of you with going to coed educational schools so it's normal for you but uh, but then it, it seemed uh, it seemed bizarre to to a lot of people and uh, the culture of, of the brigade is, in some ways always the same, and yet there are individual aspects of it that that change. For example, I've noticed in the, maybe the last 10 years, tell me if you see this too, brian upper class do not like to read. <laughs> so, <laughs> I
5: would answer Charlie in a slightly different way making a similar point, which is I learned over time never to offer my upper division elective course in the spring semester. <laughs> Because it's usually taken by seniors, and they are mentally on the way out the door uh, after the end of the fall semester. Yeah, yeah
4: I, I well, I, I do teach both semesters upper upper level too, and uh, so I, I don't notice that as much because I don't I don't have the perspective that uh, that you have. But I think you tell me now. I mean, if you have a sense of this, and I don't know, Brian. It seems to me that either you are much more busy than you used to be in the hall, that more of your time gets sucked up in things, um, and that can really contribute. So, I mean, people are, are not willingly slacking off, but they have a hard time getting it all in. I've had to cut out uh, the second semester. I teach a, a course in contemporary American literature, and um, I've had to cut a couple books out of the out of the batch that I have just that we can get it all done because I end up extending the deadlines you know, as people can't, can't finish the thing. And I, I, I'm sympathetic to that on the one hand, but then I, there's a little fudging too, I think, that, you know, that, that goes on uh, a little bit too.
0: Professor, I've got a theory about that. And uh-huh. I think that over time, the way that I've heard it is 40, 50, 60 years ago, this place was primarily <laughs> a military institution yeah. and secondarily an academic institution. Yeah. And I think over time that's shifted so that the balance has been put more on the academic side mm-hmm. of things. But, but it's I've,
5: still less than 50%. The <laughs> academic is still less than
0: 50%. Okay, well, that's, that's what I was going to say. Is I think perhaps in the past uh, 10 or so years, well, forgetting that forgetting that the academic responsibilities are less, the military responsibilities have been uh, ramped back up to some degree. And this is totally a theory of mine.
4: I don't know. Uh, You'd have to ask the commandant about uh, that.
0: I, I think so. Would, Do you have any thoughts, Professor Vandermark? Uh, similar to Charlie's
5: when I first started teaching here I assigned levels of reading which I'd be embarrassed to it reveal today <laughs> and I had no clue as to what the world of mich was like outside of the classroom and I'm exaggerating to make a point in my naivete I oftentimes operated on the assumption that their world revolved around their coursework it doesn't um, you do a lot of rigorous academic work at the Naval Academy, but it's a lot more than just that. And the metaphor I would use is you don't have the privilege or the luxury of sitting around at a cafe, sipping a mocha, pondering the meaning of life and other things at your leisure. It's simply, it's not the norm here. It's very difficult to uh, pursue that kind of a a rhythm in day-to-day life. And once I understood that, I modulated my reading assignments, and as I've told you, Nils, because you're in one of my classes, there is a functional correlation between the amount of pages you read and the likelihood that they will get read. Not because they're disrespecting you, but they have so much other uh, items on their list of things to do that it impinges on their ability to spend hours and hours and hours doing what they may wish to do.
4: I think that every time that we have an accreditation review, we always say that. The faculty always says, you know, they're they're just too busy, there's too much to do. you know, and everybody nods, and, and it just goes on the way it's going on, uh, you know, before. And it always takes a crisis of some sort to make for major change. I was surprised, actually, that the physics uh, cheating thing didn't see doesn't seem to have made a whole lot of a change. Whereas when double E happened, man, it really made a huge change in the.
0: What happened after double E, professor?
4: <sighs> well, I think. Uh, uh, curricular, there was curricular change, uh, for sure, and, um, I think people were, were just kind of shocked by the whole thing, because it was, it was pretty nasty, I don't know if the physics thing, I mean, we didn't get a lot of press about that, we didn't, but double E, it was in the press all the time, the, everybody investigated us, from the Congress to, uh, the Board of Visitors to whoever, the, the IG, uh, it, it was Admiral Ming, and <laughs> and they joked uh, when he came that it was merciless Ming was his uh, was his uh, nickname in uh, in the fleet, and so we we uh, he interviewed us as faculty members and, and other things. So it was really really quite something. And uh, I was I was asked to be in charge of a, of the in-house group that looked at that situation, and we and we made some some recommendations of changes that most of which were accepted and subsumed into the Board of Visitors it has, it had its own uh, group that came and talked to us. Um, so I don't know, it I doesn't seem that the physics thing caused as much disruption. I don't know if that's your... Ex-
5: well, you're far more... Knowledgeable about the W scandal than I am. I was here when it happened. My recollection is that the scope of involvement on the part of the students was m- quite substantial, and I think that's what sh- shocked and rocked a lot of people—that it wasn't just a handful of midshipmen, but a, a, quite a few of them.
4: Well, it was over a hundred. They stole an exam, is what started it all. I don't think that happened in physics, did it? They were just using the monster or one of the cheat sheets. And that uh, so it, it had all kinds of. Uh, ramifications um, and they were held over to, and they didn't graduate in the summer but that's when the remediation program that's part of the honor concept or part of the school's response to that came into existence uh, and um, and then they graduated at the end of the summer uh, after having a, a um, you know remediation process which is what's different than that is now
0: Professor Nolan, what were some of the recommendations that the group that
4: you're headed? I'd have to dig out my, you know, my thing. That uh... was more than just a couple of years ago, Nels. Okay. <laughs> that's fair.
5: <laughs> well, that's.
0: I'd like to ask about um, the standards of honor. There's a book written by Thomas Ricks where he says that the Marine Corps now, they have to have an introductory course in honor for incoming basic school officers going into the Marine Corps. Do you think that the midshipmen that you taught at the beginning of your time here were more honorable, or or they held those values of honor more closely than midshipmen do now?
5: I guess I don't think so. Um, I would uh, tend to agree with Charlie. My impression is that their level of honor is no more or less than it was 30 years ago. I am proud to say that one of my students early on, um, his name is Eric Goralnik, uh, participate in the creation of the midshipman-driven revision to the honor program. And Eric himself is an interesting story. He was a history major here uh, who ended up going to night school to take uh, classes to prepare for the medical equivalent of the um, SAT. Uh, he's now on the faculty of Harvard Medical School.
4: <laughs> is that right? Uh, yeah, Ross Perot was involved in that earlier thing in the 50s, uh, and then you know, the problems that occurred. And, oh. But anyway, what's your sense of that? I mean, what what, what are you guys, was the, sense, was the physics thing a, a, a big deal here or not? Got okay. cut out because of COVID, it got, you know, it, it didn't seem to have the, the same, everything was COVID related, you know, and, and rightly so, but it didn't have the kind of impact that the double E thing did because the COVID thing was so pressing. So, I mean, it it really did change life. I taught for a year and a half from a kitchen table. You know, that's different from, you know, what happened to double E. We went on with what what we were doing. So I, I think it was that more than anything that made the difference because certainly there was a lot of attention to it, but it didn't seem, it wasn't as shocking, I guess, because there was something else that was much more shocking.
0: That makes sense, you know. Would you agree with that, Professor Vandemar?
4: I
5: think that's a pretty insightful point. Um, Events uh, and their intensity uh, are deeply affected by things that occur uh, at the same time or in a period of time near them. Uh, uh, I think COVID has overshadowed the significance of a lot of other things Mm and probably moderated the intensity of the scandal when it came to the physics issue. Mm
0: -hmm. Okay, so that's interesting. So the institution itself hasn't evolved so to speak with standards of honor but it's the events surrounding the physics scandal for example that
4: have, have overshadowed it it's the other events that have overshadowed it right it's not that it's been diminished in any way i mean our our superintendent has been very strong about all of that so it isn't for lack of of effort it's just that the other thing was so overwhelming yeah overwhelming is right that's the right word um uh, for mids as well as faculty.
0: And, it would be interesting to drill down on that. This scandal, there weren't many midshipmen who were um, asked to leave the brigade or sent home as a result of that. And I don't know if that was the same way after Double E or not.
4: Well, initially it was. There were 13 people that they thought had cheated. And that was, it started because on the day of the physics exam, one student, uh, not the physics, the Double E exam, one student in one of the classes said to the professor, I saw these problems last night on email uh, and uh, that was right before Christmas. Everybody had bought their plane tickets, non, non-refundable plane tickets. Uh, and so they did a, a study. Um, they went, you know, the E people went to the dean and, uh, and the dean said, okay, do a study. Take a look at the 12-week grade and take a look at the exam grade on the on E the thing. And see if there's any difference. Well, unfortunately, they, I, as I recall, they didn't do the whole class, the whole 700 kids who took it. They did a, a portion of them, you know, using standard statistical methods, and it didn't show anything. So they said, "Okay, well, you all go home." So everybody went home, and when they came back, um, the, the the issue had not died among the midshipmen. It was blurbling up, and they kept doing this kind of stuff. Uh, and then then they began to really look at it the uh, NCIS was here uh, and everybody else came and, and, and looked into this issue because it was such a such a glaring thing and they eventually turned up a hundred and some students who were found to be in violation of the honor concept and, uh, and and had to do this remediation uh, program I would add there my impression based on what
5: from conversations with which isn't a lot, is that the institution's posture toward uh, breaches of proper conduct has evolved in a direction which, frankly, I uh, think has a lot of merit. Which is, if you mess up, uh, you own it, you accept the consequences of it, and you're remediated. The people who end up getting in deep, deep trouble and shown the door are those who will not acknowledge their ownership. Um, and persist in the deception and the lying, and that's when they are invited to uh, no longer be here. And I think that that's not an unwise policy given the frailties and vulnerabilities of human nature.
4: I think that's right. In, in some ways, the, when we looked at the honor concept and what had happened, it, everybody thought it was kind of black or white. You cheat and you're out. But it was never that way. At least that's what we found out. Uh, uh, that it had there was always uh, uh, a chance for remediation for some people and and so on Uh, but in more recent years I think the the direction of uh, you know it's uh, the honor concept was to have two two parts to it right one was educational and that one had gotten lost the educational part of it right you screw up you own it you go on you know, and, and and so on, and that's that makes a lot of sense. I mean, that's what we do as human beings: we learn. Uh, the other part was the punitive part. If you if you did, and uh, then you then you, know, you went home, or if the event was so egregious, like stealing an exam, <laughs> you know, and then passing it off to your to your friends, then it uh, then it was then it was different. The the mids had a phrase at that time: the ones who had cheated and didn't own up, lie till you die, was there. Their phrase for, uh, you know, which is... That really is horrifying. It really is. Yeah, lie until you die. This has been much better, certainly. Uh, And I don't know, what's your sense of uh, the degree of honor and stuff among midshipmen? What about you? So
3: I'm a member of the Honor Congress. Okay. And um, I think uh, there absolutely is a sense of midshipmen owning the system. And that if you do mess up and own it, And it isn't, you know, incredibly Mm -hmm. egregious. There shouldn't be, if it's first-time offense, there should be almost no chance of you getting kicked out. Mm -hmm. But there are consequences.
5: There's consequences. And you learn from it. But that's the whole point of the institution. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
4: And life, frankly. (laughs) Don't you think, Charlie? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What about you, Nels? Do you see it the same way?
0: I I see it the same way. I think there are a couple of competing... uh, ideas among midshipmen the first is that and I think it was eloquently said already that human beings make mistakes and if it's remediated there's the lessons that are learned and that are valuable and it doesn't pay to send someone over the river for one mistake if they learn the lesson and then there's also a sense that um, by not taking a stronger posture towards something like the physics scandal and by instead Uh, impacting the entire brigade with a shotgun, that instead of uh, having consequences for the people who did, exactly.
5: I have learned over the years, and I've said this in class, midshipmen will forgive a lot of things on the part of an instructor. What they will not forgive is uh, not being fair. And uh, and that sort of touches on what you were saying, that collective punishment in some ways is not really being fair. You're punishing the innocent as well as the guilty.
0: The culture of the brigade is developed through many different inputs, and one of those inputs, I think, has got to be the faculty themselves. Um, so what contributions have you tried to make to the culture of the brigade during your time here? Professor Vandemark, let's start with you.
5: Well, I uh, actually wrote down a few things because this, to me, is the most important question well, on the list. I agree with that. Um, It reflects to a significant degree why I came here, why I've stayed, and why I'd like to look back on the time I've been here as time used well in my finite life. Um, I came up with four items that uh, I've always consistently tried to convey to midshipmen through words and deeds. One is the importance of broadening your perspective. I think uh, oftentimes in the military, the perspective is a narrow one, and I want midshipmen Uh, as they mature and go through life in their career to broaden their perspective. Um, I have again and again pointed out to midshipmen uh, what can very often be the limitations of force in addressing and solving the world's problems. Uh, I think it's important for career military professionals to grasp that fundamental point. Um, I've also uh, driven home again and again, and Nels, you're familiar with this, the reality that good people can make terribly bad decisions. Mm. And the reason that is uh, a real wallop is because Naval Academy graduates are good people. Connect those dots. And the other one is uh, I've attempted to uh, cultivate good judgment Mm. in my students, because some of them down the road are going to be individuals with a lot of responsibility. and in those instances, it's often a choice among choosing uh, among lesser evils rather than good and bad. And uh, good judgment, wisdom, to me, is uh, extremely important. And it's at least as important as uh, intelligence, wisdom more than intelligence.
4: I think what Brian said is, is excellent, uh, some excellent points. For me, I think the most important thing that I try to exhibit uh is i think the essence of good leadership which is authenticity if someone is authentic you're much more likely to follow them to support them uh than if they're not and and you know you all are at a certain age where you can smell out people who are inauthentic and you won't really uh, deal with them that way so i i try to do that with with my students You, you know i we're, we're not wearing uniforms. We're not officially part of the leadership business, uh, I guess, although I think, I think we do have an impact. I think your question points in that direction. I think we do have an impact on, I hope, I hope so too, um, things. And, and that for me is, is just the key to good leadership. I was in the Air Force for nine years, I uh, went through ROTC, was Vietnam, et cetera, all of that. Fortunately, I didn't end up in Vietnam I was blind and had hay fever, so I, they weren't going to let me anywhere near a plane. Uh, so, um, And I ended up, the Air Force used my talents, as, such as they were, in, in teaching at the academy, first at their prep school and then uh, at the academy proper. Um, and I've been thinking about these kinds of issues for a long time, and, and I think authenticity is actually the, I wish we would stress that. I don't know if that comes out in your leadership courses or not, but that is, to me, the ultimate. If you can trust someone, if you know know them well enough that you can trust what they say, then I think that really makes a difference.
5: Well, let me just add here. I think that's a superbly important point, Charlie. The way I would put it, and I know has heard me say this, too. Mitchum's BS meters are set very sensitively. And that kind of gets to your right. point. And what I try to convey to them is um, it's a cliche, but there's a lot of truth to it. Lead by example. Just walk. You don't even need to talk. Just walk. It speaks for itself.
4: I think that's right.
0: Yeah. I find that interesting that both of you have such, it seems, um, passion for that aspect of your job, the mentorship part of your job towards midshipmen. Is that the same among faculty as a whole here? And if so, is that because this institution tra- attracts a certain kind of professor, or does the institution cultivate that in the professors who teach here? Uh, professor Nolan?
4: Uh, yeah, it may be part of the attraction for faculty, but probably not. I mean, it's a it's a tough world out there to get a job anywhere, and so people are going to apply to places that, you know, any, anywhere that's close, that you're going to get an application. But I think, uh, um, I think just the experience of, of being here and, and working with, uh, with you all uh, makes, makes it clear how important we can be to you uh, in, in the leadership side of things. Uh, and, and does, does it, uh, is it every faculty member? Well I don't know about that but surely that's a part and the longer you stay the more I think the more important that becomes it seems to me. That um, because you are the next generation, or whatever it's going to be, and, uh, and and we see so much, you know, in our lives, we see so much uh, that you wonder sometimes. But there have been some really outstanding examples in recent weeks of people who have stood up and done the right thing, uh, when when it wasn't advantageous for them to do that, who were in uniform, and. Uh, and that's pretty impressive when it happens. And you want those kind of people certainly to to, to be the leaders. And what we can do, I don't know. Uh, I don't know how much you all see us as uh, part of the leadership uh, function. But I think uh, most of us think about it and try to, try to exhibit the, the things we think that make, make a difference.
5: I think Charlie's point about that, Part of what we do becoming more important over time is certainly right. The longer you're here, the more you appreciate that piece of what you do is really significant and enduring. And the way I would put it is, uh, being at the Naval Academy, I will never have graduate students. Um, I write fewer books than I would if I was at a research university. But I'm teaching students whose responsibilities in the real world are greater than those of the overwhelming majority of twenty-somethings at even the best universities in this country. Yeah, I think that's,
4: that's quite right. I mean, I prize the relationships I have with I've had with students over the years, and I uh, I hope that it's been mutually beneficial. Uh, uh, I admire many of the students that I've taught. Uh, not 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 always the high chargers, you know. the... But uh the people that have really who uh, who really demonstrate the qualities of uh, humanity right that uh, that we uh, prize in each other. Uh, I, I watch my younger colleagues our department has turned over about three times since I've been here uh, with a new batch of you know a significant batch of younger people. Uh, And uh, you know, many because there is no draft, most of them have not been in the service, and uh, so it's a, you know, it's it's a difficult place for some of them to come into because they don't know the ground rules. But over time, that that changes. Uh, They they understand, and the and what I think sometimes is not uh, fully prized is the degree to which the the institution becomes. uh, our part too is it's 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 not just yours or the uniformed uh, people but uh, the, the the whole group and i think the faculty plays a big role in that because we do get to work with you on these kinds of projects or other kinds of things that 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 can matter maybe they don't always but <laughs> but they can and uh i think that's really important uh part i wish i wish that were more readily acknowledged uh, I wish students felt, I don't know, how how do you feel about that? Do you see your faculty members as as part of the leadership dynamic, uh, uh, training aspect, not training, but?
0: I personally do, and I think that's especially true in the humanities department. Maybe that's just because I'm a history major, but I think it is as well the fact that humanities has so much to teach, and especially there's a lot to be learned from those who have spent a lifetime in the humanities, from what they've learned. And those uh, attributes or those values that you develop, or not that you develop, but that you um, you're able to pull out from a career in that um, are passed, I feel are passed on to to the midshipmen, a- and I think that can be incorporated. And I can speak for myself has been incorporated in in what I in the way that I view and think about leadership.
5: One other thing I would add here is the paradox that uh, when you don't write fitness reports you you have certain advantages. <laughs> Your level of candor yeah. with the students is greater, I think, yeah. as a rule because of that. And they let their hair down with you to a greater degree yeah. because of that. So in a sense, as I often put it because it's true, um, there are people who wear uniforms here and people who wear suits. The people who run the institution wear uniforms. That's a fact. It's always been that way, always will be that way. But Again, in a paradoxical way, there are advantages to wearing a suit.
4: Especially being, what what, what would you say? That
5: the level of candor, I think, between teacher and student Mm -hmm. is uh, enhanced by that. And the students are more relaxed about really revealing themselves, I think, to people who are not writing fitness reports.
0: Professors, one of the things we're interested in is how the brigade has responded to broader historical events. So, Professor Vandermark, how was life at the Academy impacted after the attacks on September 11th?
5: The security uh, element of the grounds of the Naval Academy were profoundly affected by Mm. um, (laughs) 9-11 in ways that were understandable, almost inevitable, and deeply regretful. Uh, It's it's not open anymore the Mm. way it once was. And, I, of course, people can make the argument, and it's a good argument, that it can't be. But it's something was lost, I think, as a result of that.
4: You know, the initial thing was to set up machine guns at both gates. There were sandbags, machine guns. The gate used to be right on 450 out here. It wasn't way back from the street. And so, I mean, it was astonishing. You would come in, and w- only the people who worked here could come in for, I don't know how long it was, Brian. Mm-hmm. It was a, a long time, but there was somebody manning a machine gun, you know, uh, obviously the terrorists were not going to come through the gate, they would come off the water and they patrolled the water, you know, uh, as well, to, to make sure that, that that side of things was safe. But still, I mean, I, th- I don't know, it seems, it seems like we're still vulnerable. Uh, it's, I mean, We're in the middle of a city and and there's water around us i don't i don't know i mean that's the security people really have a big big job uh, in in keeping us all safe i want to share
5: one anecdote about 9 11 uh, because i want to tip my hat to somebody um the morning after 9 11 when everyone everyone was in profound shock at what had happened uh there was an individual standing uh at gate three as people were driving in to come to work um it wasn't the superintendent uh it wasn't the commandant it was the vice dean of academic affairs a gentleman named william garrett mm. um, who was a graduate of this institution and i thought that he was walking that talk
4: mm-hmm.
5: being there saying things go on it's going uh, things are stable keep your chin up he didn't say that he acted that and i admire him for that and i've never forgotten that
0: Professor Nolan, I'd like to go back to something you said earlier on about how the sexism when you first started teaching here was powerful. It was Could you describe that? Well,
4: a little I bit don't know. More? You should read uh, uh, Mrs. Disher's book, First Class, um, which captures the things that they put up with. Uh, and it, it marked that uh, group. I mean, they've what, had 40 years or whatever it is now uh, to uh, uh, you know to uh, deal with all of the stuff that happened, but it was just it was just kind of glaring. there was so the sexism was so obvious and the power dynamic uh, was so so great uh, that but the change has been really, really effective, especially I don't know what the sociologists say what, what percentage of any minority group you need, Twenty percent, thirty percent, something like that. There's a there's a percentage number that any minority group then really has an impact on, on the mayor, on the majority. And I think that's happened with women, especially since we've gone up to thirty percent. You know, uh, women students here don't seem to be unusual now, whereas in the past when they were only ten percent, it was striking. Really.
5: Even in 1990, when I started here, it was so obviously a steep uphill climb for female midshipmen. What? Steep? Steep uphill climb. Uh-huh. I mean, they, there was a lot of wind in their face, and they were swimming against a very strong current.
4: No women on Herndon was, uh, you know, the line for a long time to throw the women off the monument as they were climbing up. I mean, geez, what kind of stuff is that? All right. I mean. In oh, fact,
0: well. uh, Mrs. Disher is going to be our next guest on this podcast. Oh, great. So we're Excited well, about that.
4: Yeah, that's great. She and her husband both. You should drag him in sometime. <laughs> I think that'd be a good idea. <laughs>
0: One uh, last question about um, the grappling that the Naval Academy is, has undertook the past year with regard to racial and cultural inclusion. And it's clear that the administration is taking this seriously by opening up a diversity office and taking a fresh look at things like aptitude rankings. Has the Naval Academy lagged a broader society as a whole when it comes to these issues, or is it by and large a reflection of the society?
4: I don't know. How
5: I'll make you? a provocative statement. I think it's led. Mm. I think the military as an institution is far from perfect, mm-hmm. but it's far more metor- meritocratic and um, less color conscious than it once was. And that too is uh, a paradox. I think 70, 80, 90 years ago, it was trailing American society in that department. Now I think it leads it.
4: Uh, and, uh, integration, right? The, mm-hmm. the integration of the Armed Services was, was the
5: ball that got rolling in that regard. Um, but I admire that about the military. Um, they, and bless the Founding Fathers, they had the wisdom to make elected civilians the commander-in-chief of the military. And when the American people elect a commander-in-chief, he or she can issue uh, instructions that will be followed by their subordinates in the chain of command, and that will minimize the foot dragging, slow walking, <laughs> whining, and complaining <laughs> about things like this.
4: Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah.
0: Professor, would you agree with that
4: assessment? I certainly would. I, I think. Uh, you know, those founders were, what, 30-some years old? They weren't very old, and they had a, a vision of, uh, of what government should be like that uh, has, has done us well, and I hope, I hope we can maintain it. And that's, the, that's, the, that's the goal, right, to uh, maintain uh, our structures so that the structures themselves are the safeguards uh, around uh, other, pro- other problems. So yeah, I think uh, I think we've been lucky that in, the, in having that.
0: Professor Vandenmark, what is one aspect of brigade culture that you would like to see preserved into the
5: future? Uh, my answer to that question gets at the heart of what I admire about this institution, and why I think my time spent here will, will uh, I can look back with pride and satisfaction at the end of my life. It was time well invested and not wasted. And that is, the institution is not perfect, God knows. The people who comprise the institution are not perfect, God knows. But I don't know how this is done. Um, because often you see, first, he's graduating with a level of uh, j- uh, jadedness and cynicism which outstrips the uh, idealism of I day. Nonetheless, I don't know again how it's done, but I see again and again and again that the institution, somehow, almost in some cases, despite itself, inculcates in those who pass through here uh, a visceral understanding that life is not all about me, myself, and I. And uh, I admire that deeply, uh, and being a part of that is uh, what uh, floats my boat.
4: Mm. Professor Nolan? Yeah, I, uh, those are wonderful comments. I think um, it, it's uh you know, the the values that are encapsulated in the cliches, ship shipmate self and all of that sort of thing. Uh don't really touch upon the 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 deep values of uh support for for your classmates and, and and for others that is such an important part of life period and that are are articulated here and can't help but have some impact on you all, I think, uh over time. Um <laughs> we could do away with the cliches expression of them perhaps and, uh, but the the value, the, the selflessness that that is uh, such a, a part of the institution which we don't always see, obviously, right? When things are going well, it's, it's uh, part of the norm but uh, are, are things that I think uh, are so valuable f- for the country I mean, you all are citizens first, right? And then, <laughs> and then officers, uh, and uh, and and that that value of selflessness and contribution is one of the real hallmarks of the uh, of the academies, this one, as well as uh, as the others. And um, I hope that never goes away. I mean, it's easy to lose that sort of thing, really, uh, in the hurly burly of of everyday life. Uh,
0: that is a good moment to end on. Yes, it is. Professor <laughs> Vandemark and Professor Nolan, thank you very
1: much for joining us. Thank you for asking us. Thank think, you.
4: Yeah, It was a pleasure.
1: We would like to thank Professor Nolan and Professor Vandemark for joining us again on today's podcast. Our next episode, we will be interviewing a special guest about the integration and role of women within the Brigade of Midshipmen. We thank you for listening, and we look forward to you joining us on our next episode. Good night. Thank you again to Professor... Sorry about that. Damn it, (laughs) Nels! I hope he puts that in. (laughs) Sir, I'm kidding. Please don't.
4: Please put that in.